Why don't you grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 28. And I got to tell you, there's a, it's a unique experience sitting here in church, listening to the announcements, and all of a sudden feeling your stomach starting to growl, thinking about pizza. Um, Miles, that was a very enticing announcement. And I, I got to tell you, it made me think that pizza, I, I have to say, I think is arguably um, the most universally adored food, isn't it? I think it just has to be. I, I had a friend, you know, I had a friend who told me that in college, he once ate pizza 23 days straight at every single meal of the day. It just goes to show how much we love pizza, doesn't it? I mean, you can have pizza your own way. I get it. We, we all love pizza, but we all love it in our own way. And some of you, you know, you love the thin crust. Some of you, you love the deep dish. And some of you love the meat lovers or the Hawaiian, which is so weird. But <laughs> there's, a, there's a reality. Listen, that we all, we all love pizza. I think anywhere you go in the world, you're going to find that people just love pizza pizza. Maybe we could even say that to be human is to love pizza. Okay, that may be taking it a little bit far. That may be pushing the envelope just a little bit. But you know, there really are some things that are common to all human beings. Pizza may not be one of them, but the way God has made us, the way God has wired us, tells us that no matter where you go, in the world, what you will find across humanity is that there are certain cravings of the soul, longings of the heart that every human being has in common because that's the way that God has made us to be. He has made all of humanity, it's built into the DNA, the fabric of who we are, to experience common cravings. And this morning, I want us, as we look at Acts chapter 28, to be reminded of some of the common cravings of the human heart. And this is so instrumental as we think about going to the ends of the earth. Listen, as Paul is going to the ends of the earth with the gospel, we're reminded, listen, as we cross different barriers, geographical barriers, uh, ethnic barriers, socioeconomic barriers, one of the questions we need to ask is this, how can this gospel, the same gospel, be applicable to all human beings? The answer is very simple, because it actually does relate to those common cravings of the human heart. It answers the common cravings of every single human heart. Paul, as he lands uh, on shore safely, you remember if you are here with us the last couple weeks, Paul has been shipwrecked. All of the crew, 276 individuals have been saved. God had promised to save them. God has promised to get Paul to Rome. God has promised to bring the gospel to the end of the earth. Now we see what happens as Paul and the crew wash up on shore. They encounter some uh, pagan tribes, some natives of this island of Malta that we're going to see. And we learn here, we're reminded once again of the common cravings, the things that are inherent in every single human being. So let's look at the first one together. The first one is this, that there is, within every human heart, the inherent sense of morality. An inherent sense of morality. Verses 1 through 4 lay this out for us. Look with me at God's word. It says this, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. And the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, 
Justice has not allowed him to live. First of all, we have the sweet reminder, don't we, of the deliverance provided by God, the rescue and the salvation that God offered to all of these individuals on the ship. They wash up to shore and God's grace has safely guided them through the storm. They find out they're on this island called Malta and they're met by a a group of native people there. Uh, Literally the term in the original language is barbarians. Since Greek wasn't their first language and they were uncultured by Greco-Roman standards, they were known as barbarians. What's interesting is that you know, maybe they were expecting here to be met with hostility. You wash up on shore on some strange island and you think, you know, this could be trouble. Who knows what we're going to encounter? Who knows how the people here are going to treat us? There seems to be a sense where they thought likely they were going to be met with hostility because you'll see here in the text that it, Luke points out that they were met with unusual kindness. It wasn't normal to experience what they experienced. And all of a sudden, these natives gather around them. They see that they're cold, they're wet, they're shipwrecked. They see that they're in need. And so they begin to care for them. They build them a fire, and Paul, like he always does, he wants to serve others, so he goes and he starts gathering maybe a bundle of sticks. Maybe they were already kind of, you know, set together over in the corner. He picks them up, and he goes and he places them on the fire, and as he does, the heat pushes this snake, this viper, out from the sticks, and it latches onto his hand. Now, these native people are looking at Paul and they begin to think that this has happened for a reason. You see, they attribute bad things happening to people as a a sort of justice, a a kind of divine justice that somehow he's escaped from the sea, but the gods won't allow him to live because obviously he's done something really bad, right? Whenever, Whenever you get bit by a snake, it's clear you've done something wrong, right? This is divine justice, they think, you see. There is built into them, and I think built into every single human being, this inherent sense of morality. It doesn't matter where you go. You could wash up on some strange island, and what you will find is there is a system of justice. There is a sense of morality that guides that. It's always fascinating to me that everyone everywhere has this standard of morality. There is a standard of right and wrong. It doesn't matter where you go, every culture. And and yes, it may look a little bit different in different places, but everywhere you go, there is some standard for what is right and what is wrong, what is accepted, what is not accepted. C.S. Lewis, he is a great author of the book, Mere Christianity. He actually begins his book with this very reality. He begins the very first chapter. He entitles the first chapter. It's called The Law of Human Nature. Now, Lewis, he wrote these, this book. It came out of a series of radio addresses that he did um, over the course of, I think, around six to eight weeks. And Lewis had been asked to give these radio addresses. They became so popular as he proclaimed the truth of who God was and what Christians believed that they asked him to put it into a book. And so he expanded his writings. The very first chapter of the book is called The Law of Human Nature. This is where he wanted to start the entire argument for not only the existence of God, but the existence of the Christian faith. And he begins with an example in this chapter of hearing people, a common experience, he argues, of hearing people in some kind of an argument, some kind of a, a, a disagreement, and you know, you hear things all the time like this. How would you like it if someone did that to you? How many times have you said that? Or, or something like this, that's my seat, I was there first. 
or leave him alone. He didn't do you any harm. Now, Lewis writes, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. It looks, Lewis says, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you like to call it about which they really agree. We've all been wired with this sense of objective moral values and duties. And although the specifics, like I said, may vary from culture to culture, every culture holds some things to be right and wrong, true and false. It used to be called the law of nature because it was once thought that everyone everywhere knew it by nature and it didn't need to be taught. Like the laws of math or science, things that are, are objectively true, so too was it thought the law of morality was objectively true. Now, this does not mean, by the way, that the odd person here or there doesn't know it. Like in all of humanity, we find some people here or there that are colorblind or are tone deaf. That's another one of Lewis's ideas. But humanity as a whole knows by nature an objective moral standard. The Apostle Paul sets forth this truth in the book of Romans when he writes in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he says, for when Gentiles do, uh, or who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written, listen to this, on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul is making an argument from the reality that you don't have to have uh, God tell you that there is right or wrong in the Bible to know that there are things that are right and wrong because God says, I have not only made it true in my word, I have made it true in the heart of every human being. We all understand deep within some things that are objectively wrong, bad, and evil. More than that, we all know, listen, we all know that we have not kept this objective moral standard. We know there are certain consequences to not keeping the objective moral standards, and so we too, like these natives here, believe in a concept of consequences for disobeying this moral standard and law. It's called justice. And that's what they point to. They, they seem to think, again, that somehow Paul has done wrong and he's likely a murderer because they're expecting him to die from this snake bite. And what we see here is this, the consequences and the expectation of justice and these moral standards, they point to a deeper reality, and that is this, the inherent knowledge of deity. You see, the concept of morality has to find its grounding and its foundation somewhere. The question we need to ask is, what is that objective moral standard? Where does that come from? Where do we find it? And the answer is also embedded in the human heart, because there is an inherent knowledge of deity. All of us understand, I think, deep down, that we can back up and find all of our moral standards in a supreme being who is above all things. Again, what that looks like from culture to culture may differ, but it is fascinating that throughout all of human history that the concept of deity has been existing. Whatever culture you go to, you can find evidence of temples, pagan deities or pagan gods. Sometimes there, and generally speaking, there is more than one, a plurality of gods. 
These natives, they are not Christians, they are not Jews, and yet what we see is that they too have this concept of deity in their heart and mind. And look at verse 5, it's so fascinating, he doesn't die. Verse 5 says, he however shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And look at verse 6, they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. That's really nice, isn't it? (laughs) I was like, hey, you see this guy's got a snake hanging off. This is all just sit back. Just wait, wait for the swelling. Here it comes. It doesn't come. Paul's, Paul's just kind of like, oh, that's, that's not nice, and shakes it off into the fire. And here's their response. But when they had waited a long time, and <laughs> I'd love to know if they even offered him help. When they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. What a pendulum swing. (laughs) He goes from being a murderer to a god. Obviously, he can't be harmed by snakes. He should be dead, but he's alive. He survived what, humanly speaking, is impossible to survive. And we've seen people get bit by these snakes before, and they've swollen up and they've fell down dead. And we've been watching this guy, and there's nothing wrong with him. There's something special about him. He must be a god. Lewis writes in his book, Mere Christianity, we want to know whether the universe happens to be what it is for no reason or if there happens to be a power behind it that makes it what it is. I think this is true in every human heart. We look at the world around us, we look at all of creation, we look at the universe, we look up at the stars, we we look at a mountain pass, we look out at the ocean, we look at the trees as we walk through the forest and we ask the question, how did this all get here? Is there a reason for this or does this simply come out of nothing and have no actual purpose? Does this point to the reality of a being that is so much more spectacular, so much greater, so much more powerful than anything I can possibly imagine who must have brought this into existence? Here's the truth. Objective morality points to a supreme and holy deity. By the way, traditionally, morality has been based in God who is the highest good, who is the supreme standard, but if God does not exist, what is, you need to ask this question, what is the basis for moral values? What is the basis for morality? The arguments have been proposed, and we don't have time to get into all of them here and now. Um, In fact, there are many people who have dealt with this. I would encourage you, if you're interested, what Lewis does is so fascinating. He does these radio addresses, and then people respond over the weeks and months to these addresses with objections. They write him letters. And so what he does is he actually incorporates into his book, Mere Christianity, some of the objections that people propose. So as he writes this book, he's going, hey, when I said this, I didn't get into all these objections, but so-and-so wrote me a letter, and here's what I would say to that. And so if you're interested in some of those, it's so fascinating. That is a phenomenal book to help you think through some of these objections. But, it, but interestingly, Lewis himself, before becoming a believer in Jesus Christ, was an atheist, and he was a sharp, sharp intellectual. And he wrestled through, in his own conversion story, this intellectual battle in his heart and mind for the existence of God, and it took him quite a while, and he recounts his own conversion experience in the book, Mere Christianity, and he says this, he says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. How often have you heard that? There can't be a God. Look how unjust this is. Look how unfair this world is. 
Lewis says, that was my supreme argument against the existence of God, right? Like, if God exists, he's got to be unjust, because look at all the unjust injustice in the world. Remember, he was writing this after he had also fought in the world war. And by the way, so many people at that time were so skeptical of the existence of God, they had just seen horrors of war, mur- like mass murders, despicable things taking place, and many came back from the war with this very idea that Lewis had. How is it possible that God exists when the world, the universe, seems so cruel and unjust? But Lewis goes on and he says this, but how had I got this idea of just or unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust, he says. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But he says, this is so interesting, this argument, listen to this. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. Right? You, you see what he's saying there? If, if I just said that this was just something uh, that I had kind of come up with on my own, then that actually argues against my previous argument. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. He said, I, I can't say the world is unjust unless I have an objective standard of what true justice is. And the moment that you try to say that justice or morality is simply, uh, you know, this herd mentality, it's a social construct, it's something that has been ingrained in us by the community that we live in, all of a sudden it actually undercuts the very argument against God. He says this concept of justice had to come from somewhere. You know, the concept of justice, biblically speaking, is rooted in our knowledge of deity. Paul in Romans chapter 1 says these words, verses 19 and 20, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now Paul writes this, listen, you can keep it up there for a second. Paul writes this, listen, with the backdrop of talking about the wrath of God that is coming against all of humanity. The idea, listen, the concept of justice, the, the, the justice of God that we leveled out against sinful humanity. Paul writes, listen, there's no excuse for anybody because everybody understands that there is a God that they have to give an account to. He says, this God has not hidden himself. He has made himself known, and you can see, listen, you can't know this God personally. I know so many of you know this, but you need to maybe be reminded of this. You can't know this God personally by simply looking out at creation and seeing all of the, the beauty and the majesty and the power that's exhibited around you. But he says, you can know that there is a God. And it is that knowledge of a God that reminds us that there is one who one day we will stand before our creator and our king, the ruler of this universe, and one day we will give an account to him. I think it's fair to say again, just a reminder, as Luke writes this, he's giving us a snapshot of what's happened. He's not always filling in every aspect of the journey, and so I think it's right to assume when we get here, by the way, and even though the word of God doesn't say it specifically, I think based on um, past patterns and, 
examples of Paul's ministry. It's a healthy assumption to believe that Paul used this opportunity right here to preach about the one true and living God. He saw people who believed in deity. He saw people that understood the concept of morality. And now all of a sudden they come to him. You have to imagine. Remember Paul's done this before, right? Paul and Barnabas. Remember Acts chapter 14? He goes healing and all of a sudden the people bow down and they want to worship him as a god. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm just a man like you. But as Paul so often did, he takes advantage of what's right in front of him. It's a great lesson for us. Like in Acts chapter 17, when he walks to Mars Hill, and he looks at all the gods that they, they have idols they've made these gods for, and he even finds an idol with the inscription to an unknown god, you know, just in case they missed one. And Paul says, let me tell you about this unknown God. I know the God that you are longing for, that you are looking for. You know him deep down inside, but let me explain him to you so that you can truly, really know him. And this is our goal as followers of Jesus Christ. When we go to the ends of the earth, wherever we go, we will find people who have the knowledge of deity, the concept of a God who created all of this, and we need to help point them to the reality, like Paul on Mars Hill, show them why that craving exists and who it is that exists to fulfill that craving and longing in their soul, the one true and living God. Every heart craves to know him. But you know what? Every heart craves to be known by him as well. And that's why there is, thirdly here, the inherent desire for hospitality. Every heart has an inherent desire for hospitality. And it's obvious here, verse 7, look at it with me. It says, now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. I want you just to combine that thought, this picture of hospitality, the chief among them, showing hospitality, entertaining them, caring for them for three days. And look back at verse two, it says this, that the native people showed an unusual kindness. They had kindled a fire and they, listen to these words, welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. You see, the people had seen the predicament. They had seen the loss and the devastation. And again, rather than being met with hostility, Luke writes in a way of surprise, I think because of this unusual kindness that is being shown to them. I think, by the way, first of all, this is, this is an act of God's grace, that God can use unbelievers to bless us. Did you, you realize that? There are people who don't know and love God that can be so kind and sweet to us, and we need to see that for what it is. It's an act of God's common grace. to be embraced, to be warmed when you're cold, to be welcomed when you're in fear. The kindness and care is such a sweet gift of God's grace to Paul and all the passengers. They have been rescued by God himself, but God uses these local natives to relieve some of their physical pain and burdens, to help feed maybe their aching bellies, to help with some of the wounds, to put a blanket on them and warm them by the fire. Hospitality can be defined as the quality or disposition of receiving and treating guests and strangers in a warm, friendly, generous way. In the New Testament, the very word, the Greek word that's translated hospitality, literally means love of strangers. Hospitality throughout the scriptures is a virtue that is both commanded and commended. 
In the Old Testament, it, is, it was specifically commanded by God. Leviticus 19, verses 34 and, or 33, excuse me, and 34 says this, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. There's the hospitality. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. Here's what I want you to see. Even in that verse, the concept of hospitality is linked to the kindness and hospitality of God. Do you catch that there in that verse? The reason that you are supposed to be hospitable, Israel, is because, look, I cared for you even when you were in a foreign land. I had the people in a foreign land care for you. I am the Lord, right? That's what he says, your God. It's a reminder to the people of Israel. Listen, I demonstrated hospitality. I gave you welcome and care. I showed generosity to you when you were strangers. Listen, that's such an important concept to motivate our hearts. You know, everywhere I've gone in the world, hospitality seems to be just an inherent part of the culture. It doesn't matter where you go. The concept of hospitality is there. That's not to say that everyone in every place is equally as hospitable, but it is to say that hospitality is valued in virtually every culture, religion, race, and creed. It's always sweet to go to places, especially that are impoverished. I remember being in Nepal, and the the kind of hospitality they show you, they don't have much, but they'll give you everything they have just to show you hospitality. When we were recently in Romania, I was reminded of this as well. They want to have you in their homes. They want to serve you a meal. They want to care for you and make sure you don't feel burdened in any way. They even let you try some of the local delicacies. Miles and I had the opportunity to eat pickled watermelon. That's a real thing. It wasn't that good either. But look, the desire to show hospitality and the enjoyment, listen, of receiving hospitality is rooted in our humanity. You know, part of humanity, we need to be reminded of this often, is being created in the image of God. We're the only created things, the Bible says, that are created in the image of God. Being created in the image of God doesn't mean, by the way, that we, we simply bear characteristics of God as if there are some things that are similar in us that are similar to God. It means that we were created to actually image God. By the way we live, by the way we function, by the way we act, we are image bearers to the world, to each other. On a regular basis, our objective in our humanity is to image God to each other and to the lost and dying world. It's one of the ways that God cares for his people and one of the ways God attracts people to himself. We long to give and receive hospitality because there is, listen, a deeper desire embedded in the human heart to experience the hospitality of God. For that is what we were created to know and enjoy. The hospitality of God began at the creation of the world and the Garden of Eden and God inviting humanity into his creation, into his home, so to speak. But we know in Eden that hospitality of God was in some senses lost and broken. Every one of us now on this earth in one sense, as a stranger, an alien, when it comes to our relationship with God, we were before we knew Jesus Christ. But listen, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are met, aren't we, with unusual kindness. Where we should have been met, listen, with hostility and rejection 
and justice. God in his unusual kindness comes to us through his son Jesus Christ and he says, listen, you who are far off, you who are enemies of mine, you who hate me and reject me by the way you live, you who don't want me as your king, I love you and I want to welcome you and embrace you. I want to bring you in out of the cold and the dark and the wet and I want to warm you and care for you and love you. I want you to know what it is to be in perfect relationship with me. This is the hospitality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me just remind you, just, it's not on the screen, it's, it's, don't turn, just listen for a second. Be reminded as your hearts are warmed by the fire of God's word, by Romans chapter five, listen to this, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is the picture of the hospitality that God offers to all of humanity. And this, by the way, is the hospitality that every single heart, ultimately, whether they know it or not, longs for. Our own hospitality to others Listen, as you look around each other, as you serve one another, as we're hospitable uh, to one another and to the world around us, listen, it is driven. It is, our, our hospitality becomes powerful when we allow it to be refreshed and driven by the hospitality that God shows to us in Jesus Christ. All of us were like prodigals who walked with our heads down in shame and guilt, and yet we were met by the hospitality of the Father who runs to us with open arms embracing us as his own. But deep down, listen, we know that this embrace requires something else. To know the hospitality of God, that thing that we long for, we understand something needs to be done to make that a reality, and that's why there is the inherent longing for remedy. There is an inherent longing in our hearts to remedy the, the, the sickness and the brokenness of our souls and the world that we live in. Paul, here in verse 8, we get a picture of this. It says, it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had disease also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed Paul's heart here is such a beautiful example. He hears that the, the tribe leader, the chief of the tribe, Publius, his father is very, very sick. And I love the heart of Paul. It's such a great reminder for us. He has such compassion. Paul, here's Paul, shipwrecked, homeless, and yet he's the one having compassion on those around him. Isn't that awesome? He cares so deeply about the lost and the broken and the needy. It sounds so much like Jesus Christ. Oz Guinness is one of my favorite authors. And he's, he's one of my favorite thinkers. He recounted a time of his life where he spent living with Francis and Edith Schaefer. Francis Schaefer is another really famous Christian author and thinker. He was an apologist who influenced many um, by both his life and he continues to, to this day by his writings. 
Guinness had the privilege of living with Francis and his wife Edith for around four years, and he said that he saw up close and personal what made this man so effective in the evangelist. He said he, him and his wife led thousands and thousands of people to Christ, and, and most of that was done through one-on-one encounters. He said that he was one of the greatest one-on-one evangelists he has ever seen and he's ever known to this day. And he, he was describing Francis Schaeffer's process of how he engaged with people. And there was such this, this sweetness in how he did this. But he would simply go to the individual that he didn't know at all. Maybe somebody he just met on the streets and he'd just say, hey friend, tell me your story. And the person, oftentimes, unknowingly, would begin to just pour out their heart before him, and Francis Schaeffer would would sit there with a a, a look of compassion on his face, and every once in a while, his eyes would begin to well up with tears as he heard the story of the person sitting before him with just, listen, such care and, and love for the soul of the person who was sitting in front of him. And that care and compassion was one of the most beautiful things that people saw in this man that that made them open to hearing about Jesus Christ. And Paul is so filled with this kind of compassion for the lost. He sees this hurting man, and he goes, he prays, and he heals them by the power of God. And the compounding effect of his compassion is that everybody else there longs to experience this healing power, this compassion, this, this, this remedy to all their ailments and all of their disease either for themselves or for those that they love. They begin to bring the broken, the sick, the hurting. All of those are brought to Paul and he heals them. You know, the broken, the sick, the hurting, the needy are always intended to remind us, scripturally speaking, of the effects of the fall. Sickness, disease, death, all of these things are physical reminders that there is not something right with the world, but there is something devastatingly wrong with the world that our world is broken, that our world is desperately in need of healing. It, it points to the sickness of sin in the world. It points, doesn't it, to our own sickness and disease, to the sin that pervades every single one of our lives. We look at the brokenness in the world and we see that there needs to be a remedy, but it needs to cause us to look at our own lives. And I hope you do this often. I hope even this morning you're looking at your life and you're seeing your sin. Maybe you're seeing your experiences in your life where there's brokenness and there's pain and there's hurt. And what you see is that there is a deep longing in your soul to see yourself and everything around you made right again, restored back to the way God God had created it to be. We long for compassion and mercy to be showered upon us. And by the grace of God, it is freely given to us in Jesus Christ. The cross is the greatest reminder of God's compassion toward us. He saw us. He saw us broken and needy. He knew that we couldn't fix ourselves. He knew that the only remedy was him coming for us, him taking the penalty, him taking the consequences of our sin upon himself, him dying in our place. Three days later, rising victorious. And the beauty of the resurrection reminds us as well that there is a day coming when all things will be brought back to life. All things will be made new And by the grace of God, God is beginning right now with us. He is making all things new by the blood of the cross. He is changing us. He is healing us. He is fixing us. But listen, it requires you to come and receive the free gift of grace. 
It requires you to come to the cross in humility, in repentance, in faith. It requires you to come low and saying, I can't fix this. I can't heal this. I need God to do it. Lay yourself down and take upon yourself the remedy of the cross. The solution to our sin is found in the shed blood of our Savior. The resurrected and exalted Christ offers eternal healing and eternal life, but he says to everyone, come, come and get it. Come and drink of my fountain and never thirst again. And listen, once you've received that remedy, you get what comes with it. The manifold and bountiful blessings of God, the grace that's showered upon us. Listen, what your heart and every heart craves ultimately is the inherent need for community. There is in all of us, every single one of us, an inherent need for community. And there is something, this remedy in the gospel, that can bind us together in the tightest, best kind of community ever experienced. Verse 11 kind of shifts gears. They send them on their way. They bless them. They give them everything they need. And after three months, verse 11 says, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Rehegium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Petulio. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. I just want you to see what Luke highlights for us here. He highlights the blessing of being in the body of Christ. As God continues to direct the events of history, providentially bringing Paul to Rome just as he has promised, there are some believers there who come to support and care for Paul and to breathe life back into him. They hear about the circumstances. They hear about the shipwreck. They hear maybe what Paul has had to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. You know, they, he, they just hear about the circumstances that have been so devastating and so hard, and they go out of their way to come alongside and to bless and to care. They come a long way. Paul sees their love for him and their care of him, and he thanks God, and his heart is so encouraged you know, just simply, listen, I'm reminded by this that God never intended us to stay on an island, pun intended. You get it? He was just on an island. He's designed us for more. He's designed us to need community. This is inherent, again, in being human, and it reflects the very image of God. Listen, listen, God created us in His image. And when God created us, he created us, he did create us like him, to know and to love and to experience community. God himself lives in everlasting community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally existing together in fellowship, in love towards one another. And God says, I want to invite you in to experience the joys of being not only in community with others, but in community with me. I want you to know what it is to have your soul satisfied, to have your hearts filled with courage and joy. You know, the church is a community of faith that is united by Jesus Christ. 
If you look around this room, you'll see a variety of people from different backgrounds, from different cultures, ethnicities, socioeconomic statuses, stages of life. All of us pulled together by the rope of God's grace into one family. Listen, fighting for unity and joy like all families do. We have in this community, a common God and a common Savior, Jesus Christ. We have a common mission and a common goal. We are sent by our God to go to the ends of the earth. You know, we still value community in this church. That's why we we talk so much about small groups. We want everybody to be in a small group. It's a mechanism of discipleship. It's a mechanism to enjoy community. It's hard sometimes to, to get into community when you walk into a church. And what happens on Sunday mornings doesn't suffice. It's not enough community. This is great. It's really sweet. But we need to be in each other's lives. We need to love each other, to care for each other, to support each other. I regularly hear testimonies of people who are hurting and in need and broken and and being served so faithfully by people around them in this church and in small groups. This is in one sense a call to embrace community, to know that this is God's design for us as a church. Someone said to me this week that they had just moved into a new small group. They've been in their current small group for a few years. And you know, oftentimes that can be really hard for people moving to small groups. Some of you know you've had to do it. It's hard because you're leaving old friends and you're leaving the way you used to do things. There's a sense of comfortability. But this individual looked with me with joy on her face and she said, I can't wait to get into this new group. I'm just so excited to meet and get to know these new people. Can I just tell you, like that, that, that is the picture of what it means to exist and to do life together in the body of Jesus Christ. It's not a burden to get to know each other. It is a joy and a privilege, and God has called us to love one another in this way. That is a heart that understands community and has a right view of how to foster community. These brothers here didn't know Paul, but they loved him because they had the same Savior. They had been embraced into the same body, And every heart has this inherent need for community. Community with God and community with those who love God. We need it. We need it for strength. We need it for encouragement. We need it for joy as we press on together to the ends of the earth. We are forging that here. Your part, if I can give you three thoughts on that, your part of that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ is to be involved. Be involved in the community of believers. Let your guard down, get to know others, serve each other, do life together. Secondly, be intentional. This kind of community doesn't happen by accident. You need to be involved, you need to be intentional. You need to choose what you're going to prioritize in your life and what maybe need to go from your life so that you can invest yourself into the community of faith that God has put you in. And lastly, you need to be inviting. Church, we need to be inviting people to be a part of this community. Be involved, be intentional, and be inviting. We're all different, but we're all the same. We may like our pizzas a little bit differently, but we all love pizza. Every heart has been hardwired to crave. These common cravings point us to the only one, listen, the only one that can satisfy those cravings. Nothing else will do. No one else will do. There is only one. And we go to the ends of the earth because our cravings have been satisfied by him. And we long for others to know the satisfaction that we enjoy, amen? Father, would you help us? God, would you help us even now in this moment 
to reflect upon the cravings of our heart and to recognize, Lord, that so often these cravings, even us as followers of Christ, Lord, these cravings, we seek to meet these cravings and be satisfied by these cravings or by other things. And God, we confess to you that those things that we turn to to satisfy, they will not do, they cannot do, they have not done it in the past, they will not do it in the future. And all they do, Lord, is distract us from our mission and distract us from enjoying more of you. So, Father, even now we lay them down before you. All of those things that we think will satisfy, we lay them down, Lord, and we say, Father, we only want you. We want what we were designed and created for. We want to know the deep satisfaction, Lord, every single day of our lives. We want to dig deep into your word. We want to, Lord, rest in you. We want to, Lord, rest in community with you and in fellowship with you and fellowship with the body of believers that you have given us. We want to throw away everything else, Lord, of this world that cannot satisfy, and we want to run to the one who can. God, for those here in this place who don't know you, and maybe, Lord, their cravings have been peaked in one sense this morning. God, I just ask that you would show them that satisfaction lies only in you. God, draw them to the cross this morning. Draw them to yourself through your son, Jesus Christ. May they, Lord, in repentance and humility and faith come to you. And God, in your grace and in your faithfulness, will you meet them, Father, when you fill them with the joy and satisfaction that only you can. God, now as we are reminded of our calling to go to the ends of the earth, we do so, Lord, desiring to be motivated by the satisfaction of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, it is our longing because we have been so satisfied to offer you praises from our hearts through our lips. Would you receive them now, we pray, in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.